You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The lion with no courage, tin man with no heart, scarecrow with no brain, along with a female protagonist and her silver slippers setting down a road of gold. It's an interesting story, one in a magic land of Oz, but may have its roots in one of the country's worst economic crises. President Obama may feel like he's in a bit of a political Oz right now where one special election in a state where he won overwhelmingly can change the whole game. And speaking of game change, there's yet another book out catching the country by storm, a book that portends to tell the story of the 2008 election from the inside. It's something that's been done, oh, only since 1960 or so, and probably before that in various ways. We've talked about the durability of the two parties in America. One party or the other will always seem to survive. They'll switch places. One will be on top, the other on the bottom. But still, there they are, the elephant and the donkey. And so in Massachusetts, where no Republicans have been elected since the 1970s to the Senate, the victory of a Republican for an open seat in a state President Obama overwhelmingly won. Every Democrat has overwhelmingly won since the 1984 election. Some of this might be us tricking ourselves. This state, whilst blue in Appalachian, has voted recently for Republican governors. The follies in the state house, the local politics, are not working out well right now for Democrats. Dems erred, in my opinion, in not appointing the candidate they were going to run to the Senate seat. So it was not Senator Coakley running. The candidate could not make law. The candidate could not be in the news. Those who know the state of Massachusetts well will know that the western side of the state is a lot more Republican than the area around Boston. And historically speaking, this is an area that has produced one of the United States' first revolutions. Actually, a revolution against the state of Massachusetts and those in Boston who were running the state at the time. Shea's Rebellion, Colonel Shea. Uh, leading a group of former revolutionary soldiers against the government of Massachusetts. So it's a revolutionary area. Tip O'Neill, in his biography, Man of the House, writes about how difficult it was back in the 1950s and early 1960s taking the state from Republicans. It had been a solidly Republican state at that time. And Tip O'Neill and his Democratic colleagues went town by town finding candidates in local um, local elected officials to run for the state legislature in order to get control of the state. The upset election of Scott Brown has also taught us another valuable lesson in politics. Don't make fun of a guy's pickup truck. 
While you get lost in the moment of uh, all this, Democrats still have 59 seats in the Senate and an advantage of 40 seats in the House. Having that many senators of one party is very rare in American politics. But they have a problem. The trouble is, Democrats and the president are attempting a major change in federal policy. And due to the Constitution, well, not really the Constitution, due to Senate rules, 60 votes are needed. This one election has therefore thrown a wrench in everybody's plans. And so although there's a lot that can be done with 59 senators, Obama's in the difficult situation now of probably having to pull back a bit. But if he does that, does he lose? If he pulls back, reconsiders, will he get Republicans to join with him on a revised plan? Or will they, just going for a win in the midterms, refuse to cooperate at all? We're hearing signals from Olympia Snow, Susan Collins, even John McCain, signaling that they might be willing to work. Whenever I'm asked, why study history and what does it have to do with American politics? I'll say, I'll stop studying history when politicians do. The history is on politicians' minds currently. Look at the current situation. History is influencing both of their actions on the chessboard. For Republicans, they're looking back to 1993 and 1994. If they can obstruct, if they can derail the president's health care plan, they can win in the midterms. For the president, he knows for 2010 and 2012, he needs an accomplishment. An accomplishment would help right now, a win prior to the midterms. It's probably necessary for the president to come out with some kind of a win on health care, if only because he's put his mark on health care reform. He was careful unlike the, the example of President Clinton, to avoid a specific plan. But he still put his mark on some kind of health care reform. That's tougher now, because any second action can be filibustered. And it's unlikely that the House would simply pass the Senate bill, thereby putting it into effect. The creative options, it appears, are gone. The president can compromise, or he can fight it out in November and say, give me the Congress I need and I'll do such and such. Historically, that's a difficult play. Recent memory, only George W. Bush did it in a first-term midterm, with 9-11 in the background and troops in Iraq. Woodrow Wilson and Harry S. Truman lost big when they asked for a mandate in midterm elections. 1918 and 1946. Dick Morris, who was, before he became a Republican advisor and commentator, was running... Clinton's campaign, told him in 1994 to go abroad and not to campaign for candidates. No one wanted to see a partisan president. Clinton didn't listen to his advice. Was Morris right? Certainly for Wilson, asking for a mandate publicly in 1918 seemed partisan and backfired, especially with troops still abroad. If Obama was to fight it out and go for a mandate in the midterms, I'd say something big would have to be on the line. And a large health care bill that's complex and of limited popularity, that's questionable. A revised bill with some of the more popular provisions may work. One of the most popular provisions is simply the Patient's Bill of Rights or the ban on discrimination for pre-existing conditions. I suspect, as the noises seem to be 
coming out of Washington, the president will not fight. He seems to be fighting the last war, that of 93. The mentality is pass something, have a victory. I get the thinking, but I'm skeptical. Of course, American voters like action. And if you look at 62, 78, 34, and 1914, the president sort of staved off losses by taking some action. 62 was the Cuban Missile Crisis, Camp David in 78, the New Deal in 34, progressive reform in 1914. If only Clinton in 1993 had gotten health care done. Sure, that's possible. But I think the health care plan would have to pull higher, mean more. I see the buy-in into Medicare at age 55, one of the ideas that was floated during the uh, discussion period before the Senate passed the bill is more attractive than anything that's in the health care bill now. Of course, there will be opposition to the Medicare buy-in at 55, and it would appear to me something that's a little better going into a midterm. If the president stays and fights, if the president says, okay, we won't pass anything, and I'll stay and fight it out in the midterm, and then we'll see what happens. He has the added advantage of not having to prepare a plan that is real, not having to get more senators, but he'll have to win big in the midterm in order to get more votes or to get some kind of a clear mandate to pass his bill. It's a risky strategy. Or there's the olive branch. He meets with Republicans, many of those names who are often floated as the more moderate members. Comes up with something that we can vote for, but what? Something that Republicans can vote for. So what would have to change? I think that in order to get any kind of Republican votes, it would have to be a major concession, even to get a few votes. Maybe something along the lines of malpractice reform that would have to be added to the bill in order to get votes for some of the other parts. Here's an interesting factor. In hindsight, the conversion of Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania is actually hurting the president now. Although his vote has been with the caucus for most things, he cannot help the president look bipartisan in this matter because he is no longer of the Republican Party. Now he's simply one of those 59 Democratic senators. If Specter were still a Republican and voted with the president, as we assume he will now, could have actually been used uh, to give a bipartisan sheen to what the president's doing. Option no longer available to him. Keeping in mind that I am not Rahm Emanuel, that I am simply not that boyish and chief of staff-like, what would I do if I were in the president's shoes? There's not a lot of good options, but there are the best available options. And I think the best available way is to make public, not just private, attempts at conciliation with Republicans. Not just secret phone calls, but public speeches. Drag their bill out of them. Go back to the office that George Washington held. Take on the role of chief nonpartisan magistrate. We all know presidents are partisan, but while they sit in the office, they have an opportunity to be the chief magistrate. Maybe right now, the best thing for President Obama to do is to become a Whig. A Whig view of the presidency, a balance, a limited constitutional role. Say, I've seen the Democratic plan from Congress and the Senate. I've seen the House plan. I've seen the Senate plan. I've seen this bill that Republicans have brought forward. I will pick a final option. 
And depending on your viewpoint, what's either a tragedy or a moment of clarity has come out of the Scott Brown election, perhaps. Perhaps healthcare is the second, third rail of American politics, the other being Social Security. If President Obama is not able to reform it, I think there's enough historical examples that presidents just simply can't touch this issue. If, and again, that's an if. The president's not able to reform health care. You will have had Truman. You will have had Nixon. You will have had uh, Jimmy Carter to a very limited extent. You will have had President Clinton, all failing to be able to do a major overhaul of the American health care system. At that point, I think you have to look at this issue and say, Perhaps it's an issue best dealt with in pieces. And perhaps some of those pieces could start to add up to a whole without a complete and total overhaul. So far, uh, President Obama has shown no willingness to go along with that particular philosophy. He wants still a major reform of health care. And he sort of put his mark on it. But one idea that I believe we could consider if we sort of change the dimensions of what we're uh, doing here. And instead of reforming health care, pick one area. For instance, cancer. What if the United States paid for all cancer treatments? Of course, it would be expensive. But it's an issue that Americans are sympathetic to and much more willing to spend money on. Taking cancer roll uh, cases off the rolls of employers and insurance companies would surely reduce premiums, as it's a very expensive disease. It would also take a great fear off Americans. There is a precedent for this. In the late 60s, dialysis treatment was well known to save people with kidney disease, but it was also very expensive and difficult to get. And after the 1970s, the United States made a committed decision to pay for dialysis treatments. If you are on dialysis now, Generally, that's covered by the U.S. government. There'll still be tremendous opposition even to paying for cancer, but I think it becomes more of the 60-65% type issue instead of the very limited support for a complete overhaul of health care. It'll have much of the same effect. It'll help to eliminate fear. will help a lot of people who are certainly in trouble. Probably will have the effect of reducing some premiums and probably the right thing to do. And it's hard to say it's an indulgence to treat cancer. Although one could make an argument that someone might have a contribution to cancer, they didn't exercise enough on what they ate, that contribution's limited. And even the best science, it's hard to establish. You could get cancer just for any reason, the environment, your family history, etc. I have no inkling that this even being considered in the White House, but there it is. Nathan Cedric Tankus writes, Bruce, I would love to hear more about the 1893 financial crisis. It looks like the panic and railroad bubble and burst could give us clues about the recent one. Thanks, Nathan. Actually, all of the financial crises in history could give us such clues. There's actually very little unique about the 2008 crisis. What's really unique about 2008 is not the financial crisis, not even the fact that it was housing, because even that's happened or been a factor before. But it's the government's response to it. The fact that there is a government response at all. More on the panics of 1819. That was really the first American panic to the scale of something like 2008. 
Panic of 1830, 1837, 1857, and 1873 are in the archive at myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Railroads played a role in financial crisis since uh, their inception. That crisis of 1837, railroad stocks were part of it. In 1857, railroad stocks were being used as down payments for Omaha, Nebraska real estate. It was being financed by a railroad stock. And so when the railroad failed, the land then went into foreclosure. But back to 1893, I think this is an probably as devastating as the Great Depression. We don't really know, and economists argue about it to this day. But I suspect it was close. We see the 1930s as the Depression. It's not in our history, I would say, most of us, uh, most of you listening here, but it's closer. It's closer because we had parents, grandparents, great-grandparents in the Depression. Because we can see film footage and still photos of it. Because we have Steinbeck's Great of Wrath, because movies have been made about the Great Depression in the 1930s. Documentaries have been made. But perhaps more sinisterly, because Democrats, fresh from the loss of their candidate Al Smith in 1928, made a commitment to do everything they could to undermine Herbert Hoover and got extremely lucky when Hoover would suffer the worst economic crisis in his times. Democrats made sure that the Depression was well-publicized and that it was linked to Hoover. Thus, encampments of workers were called Hoovervilles. But that's not to overblow the publicity of the Democratic National Committee. The Great Depression was bad, probably didn't need any additional publicity, and people were going to get mad at Hoover either way. Unemployment was 20-25%. The GDP was cut in half. Yet 1893, and more importantly, the probably the worst year of the crisis, 1894, was frankly a depression. And just as the Great Depression led to a change in politics, just as the Great Depression would lead to Democrats in the White House for 20 years, the Panic of 1893 would have the same effect about 20 years before Democrats now would see the White House again. Republicans would be in the White House for 20 years, and it would be two decades before Democrats would see the White House again. And even there, that was a squeaker. The country went from the seesaw partisan politics of the Victorian era, gains and losses, and the comeback of Grover Cleveland, a Democratic president, the only one in the late 19th century, reestablishing his party, as a sensible steward, at least rhetorically, winning a comeback, very popular guy, Grover the Honest. The country realized they were so wrong to have thrown him out of office the first time. Now he was back. And boom, a financial disaster, a run on gold, a run on banks, 15,000 businesses collapsing, 500 banks failing, just like in the Great Depression, people going to the banks to get their savings and finding the doors closed. We believe it started with the collapse of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. And when that fell, people asked, if this, then what? If we scrap all the stats and simply look at a historical event by the political effects alone, 
If it was such a big disaster, the political effects must have been great. In effect, the Panic of 1893 was as impactful as the Great Depression. Certainly a valid way of looking at history, especially in the lack of other things. It's not only film and images and real-person memories of 1893 that we lack. GNP, GDP, unemployment, these were concepts that didn't exist, at least in the same way that they do today or that they did even in the 1930s. Uh, Still, economists can go back and try to compute some of these things. And Stanley Liebegott has said that there's an average of about 10% unemployment, what we have now in the country during the 1890s, the gay 90s that I had mentioned in a, in a podcast before. But that uh, probably does a poor job of representing the real story. Unemployment was, at least by these backward calculations, as high as 17 to 18 percent in 1894. Some economists disagree and believe it was more mild. One of the problems is We don't know the size of the labor force in this year. So it's difficult to measure the percentage of them that were unemployed. But in some industries, railroad, construction, mining, where better records were kept by those companies, unemployment rates were as high as 20%. Without government economic reports, it's necessary to look at other available stats to get a sense of how bad 1893 and the following years were. We have to look at what was measured to get a sense of unemployment. What do we look at? How about vagrancy rates? Arrests were up 15% in urban areas across the country. 40% in cities like Baltimore, which cracked down on them. And, of course, not at all in cities like Chicago, which didn't crack down on vagrants. But average 15% up. To get a sense of GDP... You can say, uh, you can look at where cotton production went from 1.8 billion in 1892, 1.6 billion in 1894. We'll drop there. Corn production from 667 million to 505 million in 1894. 4.5 billion miles of railroad, 4,500 miles of railroad construction in 1892 and that number in half by 1894. Sales of coffee and wine down 40% from 1891 levels in 1894. Hog prices from 649 per hundredweight to just 338 per hundredweight. That's the boring numbers. There was a great strike in Chicago which caused hundreds of thousands of dollars of property damage. And since Chicago was the rail hub of America, That strike threatened to shut down the country's rails. It was in as close as this country came to a general strike. When the Illinois governor supported the strike and did very little to stop it, President Cleveland overruled him and sent federal troops in to put the squabble down. A strike in Pennsylvania coal country also led to violence. A wealthy Ohio quarry owner and a visionary, a man named Jacob Satchler Coxley, who had been a populist and a greenbacker, called for a program of public works, a radical idea at the time, using silver coinage, more money out, which would make it easier for farmers to get and pay back debts. Of course, it wouldn't be good news for those who they were paying back. 
But Coxley did more than just cite ideas. He led an army of out-of-work people, unemployed workers, and hobos, 10,000 strong, to the nation's capital. He was joined by a group from Los Angeles and a group and a group about 1,500 from Oakland, of which the soon-to-be writer Jack London, then a hobo, was one. Things went well in the West for Coxley's army. There was tremendous support. People would feed them along the way. The governors of Oregon and several western states supported the movement, allowed them free passage. A railroad tried to derail the Los Angeles contingent in Texas, only to be ordered by the governor of that state to keep them moving. A sympathetic congressman introduced a bill of Coxley's ideas, but Congress stalled him. And here's where everything broke down. Although there was support in the West for Coxley's army, when they came a-marching into the East, the more conservative area of the country, Coxley's army was harassed and heckled by police and residents in the eastern states. Many were arrested along the way. Only 500 made it to Washington, D.C. When Coxley went to speak on the Capitol lawn, police chased him off. And while they allowed him and his group of a few hundred to camp down the street from the Capitol, when a crowd came to watch them and hear him speak, police chased the crowd away. They let Coxley stay for about a month, and then the police forced them out and fined Coxley. It was a hard time for the budding labor movement in America. The Knights of Labor, who had 800,000 members, lost several hundred thousand, lost dues, suffered internal squabbles, and ended up folding. The Knights of Labor was an unskilled labor union, first of its kind, and it suffered from this depression. In the absence of GDP again, we can try to look at the effects and say, wasn't this just as bad as the Great Depression? Births and marriages were affected. Births were down 3% in New York, 5% in Indianapolis, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. Marriages dropped from 9.2 per thousand of population in 1892 to 8.6 per thousand of population in 1894. Just like in the 1930s, marriages were put off. College admissions dropped. That means futures were postponed. And even though many didn't go to college then in America, that meant several futures, at least in the upper middle class, were postponed. There's human stories, too, where we don't have all the statistics. Some newspaper articles recorded some, the, especially the brutal winter of 1893 to 1894 when the crisis first hit. Three impoverished immigrants starved to death at Pittsburgh. In Long Island City, a tenement house of 12 Italian families, 50 people in all, were freezing without coal, no heat, and no word from the landlord. In, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, a court convicted five farmers for butchering cattle in order to feed their families. These were the reported stories, but even more than the 1930s, there was the Invisible Group. This was the 1890s, remember, the same time immigrants were coming in droves into the country. Statistics were poor. Cities were overloaded as it was. That's the best, I believe, we can do to paint a picture of what 1894 might have been like. It was a long time ago, and how much does it really tell us about things now in our uh, relative, much more comfortable recession of 2008? But can 1894 tell us anything? Well, it is an example of a crisis where the government did nothing. No stimulus, no unemployment, no Social Security, no TARP. 
There was one step the government took, which I'll talk about later, but nothing that you or I would see in our paychecks. The government did nothing. The president did not consider it his job to fix the economy. A statement from the White House that the most important thing was bringing jobs to America would make no sense to a president like Grover Cleveland. And despite that, despite the federal government doing nothing, it did eventually get better. But still in all, it was a long wait if you were one that was suffering then. Some stats didn't get better until 1899 or 1900, some six years later. The consumer was back, we could say, by 1895. The consumer parts of the economy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Consumer durable products purchases. These are things like, let's say, furniture, floor coverings, musical instruments, jewelry, horse wagons, etc., went from 734 million in 1892, a veritable boom then, to 593 million in 1894. By 1895, it was up to 687 million. And by 1896, it was back to those 1892 levels at least in durable consumer purchases, it was just a four-year recession. Consumer semi-durables, these would be things like tools, books, trinkets, things that were small but not disposable. These weren't as impacted as much, uh, from about $1.3 billion in 1892 to $1.2 in 1893, but back up to $1.4 in 1895. Non-food perishable, these are things like soap and matches, you know, more disposable items, pretty much stayed the same, around $720 million throughout these years. Dipped about 4% in the year 1894. You know, a few less candles. 
And people still ate food through the entire 1890s, around $3.4 billion in food purchases. I guess it's not surprising with hog prices that low and uh, not buying a new wagon, you know, there was money for uh, food. Even though 1895 you know, seemed, at least on paper, to be a recovery from the panic that had started in 1892, I doubt it seemed that way at the time. And in fact, we know from the effects of it, from the politics of it, that 1896 was still considered an election in a depression year. And the election featuring the Silverite Democrats uh, versus uh, McKinley was all about the economic disaster. Some recovery was starting in a year before. But still, most people probably didn't feel it, especially because unemployment in 1895, even while all the spending was going on, was still, at least according to economists looking backward, about 13%. By 1898 to 1899, we were back. The consumer was spending nearly a billion on durables, $1.6 billion on the semi-stuff, and $4 billion on food. Fat and happy. So the consumer side of the recovery looks something like an upward slope. Maybe that's an indication of what will happen with us. But the interesting thing is that capital expenditures, business expenditures, for instance, take a look at railroad building. The recovery there was a bit slower. 4,500 miles of railroad built in 1892. That's down to 2,800 in 1893. And even in 1898... Now you're talking about five years from the initial panic. There were still only 2,100 miles of railroad built. It was not until 1899 that we were back up to the 1892 level of 4,500 miles. So the consumer may have been pumping some more money into the economy, but businesses weren't ready to hand over their dollars. But railroads were just one industry, right? And there was a crisis in railroads. So let's look at something else. Durable goods. These are durable machinery purchases usually made by businesses. 734 million in 1892, down to 687 million in 1895. Durable goods. 734 million in 1892, down to 559 million in 1894. And in 1898, even, it was still 692 million. This is six years later. It was not until 1899, again, that the business durable goods purchases went to 865 million. So McKinley benefited. Cleveland suffered in his reputation and did Democrats for the panic of 1893. Bread lines and soup kitchens became Cleveland cafes. But those years were blurred, the years of the 1890. And the history lesson, not too much longer And the history lesson of, say, 30, 35 years later was we did nothing in the 1890s and it kind of worked. We got out of it. We pulled ourselves by our bootstraps. But how much suffering occurred? In fact, President Cleveland did do something, but not anything in the way of a stimulus package or issuing checks or putting people to federal work programs in order to avoid a drain of gold in the economy. Gold was being called back by banks in Europe, and shipments of gold were were going across the Atlantic. The federal government arranged a loan so that a syndicate uh, could buy, or arranged a bond 
so that a syndicate could buy gold from England, uh, bringing our gold back here and helping to restore the price. Well, it wasn't money infused into the banks. It certainly benefited uh, banks, bankers, anyone who uh, loaned money. But there may be one lasting memory of the 1894 Depression and the 1893 panic, and one that's probably a bit surprising. A man named Lyman Frank Baum, a newspaper editor in the progressive area of the country of South Dakota, wrote a children's story. It was not a story with a message at all, as he told people. It was merely to entertain children. It was to be a modern story, using modern images. Yet his characters seemed conveniently well-placed with the politics of the time. Dorothy wore silver shoes and walked on a road of ostensibly gold bricks at a time when gold and silver politics were ripping the country apart. Along with a group of characters commonly seen in political cartoons at the time, a tin man who needed oil and a heart, a lion who had the power to control his destiny but no courage to do it, and the scarecrow with no brain, overcoming the wicked witch of the East, which just happened to be the direction where there was a more conservative area of the United States, and the good witch of the North, where progressives just happened to be most populous in the United States. But of course, that interpretation of the fairy tale known as the Wizard of Oz comes only from scholars looking backwards, and a few people at the time who applied politics to the story. Baum was a former Bryanite, and he was a newspaper editor, and moved to Chicago when, after the Panic of 1894, his newspaper failed. He always claimed it was just a modern fairy tale, but the wizard in his story seemed so much like a United States president, pretending everything was fine while people were suffering. And while he never said his story was anything more than a modern fairy tale, it was true that Baum wrote adult stories that were much more directly political. Very similar themes. Was it based on the events of 1893 and 1894? Perhaps, perhaps not. But we do know this. Had his paper not failed, and he not moved to Chicago, had some time on his hands, we may, we may never have been left with what might be the most lasting memory of that panic of 1893. A president using profanity, a former vice presidential candidate in an adulterous affair, a majority leader you making a racist comment, Sarah Palin arguing with McCain's campaign staff and back and forth. It's all part of a new explosive book, Game Change, a write-up of the 2008 election. Have to confess, I've not yet read the book. I plan to, and I'll probably talk about it a bit. But I did want to point out that this, like so many other things, is not a new event in American politics. In fact, the idea of a narrative of a political election, but the real political narrative putting everything together probably comes from Theodore White, his book, The Making of the President in 1960. And just as there's been criticism of the authors of Game Change, are they telling the real story? Are they just telling a soap opera? Even back then, Theodore White was criticized. As one review in a magazine called Polity said, What is it that Theodore White writes? It's not journalism. It's no kind of journalism. 
He wasn't there, so it's not a memoir. It is romance, myth-making. That's all. Another reviewer accused him of making conscious myth-making <laughs> and editing out information that would not look good for his heroes, Shanghai Shek and John F. Kennedy. Bob Woodward had also received criticism about many of his books. How could he publish so many books with exact dialogues of what characters inside the White House or Congress or American politics, exactly what they said? Were all these stories true? Woodward relies on anonymous sources. Many, many people telling their sides of the story and piecing it together as a journalist. One reviewer had noticed that there were inconsistencies between the accounts of Clinton's economically, economic policy described in two of Woodward's book, one Maestro and the other The Agenda. And the series of books during the Bush presidency had different views on how the administration conducted itself. Is he just reporting facts, reporting the facts that he had, reporting the story of who talked to him rather than the absolute truth? One reviewer said, Woodward is acting as stenographer to the rich and powerful. Christopher Hitchens said that. And it's always exciting to have a book like Game Change out. But I did want to point out that even uh, the book, The Quest for the Presidency, put out by the Newsweek staff telling the story of the 1992 election had the following details. that President Bush was told as early as August 1991, a year and a half before the election, that the economy might falter and that his distance from ordinary people could hurt him. Another revelation. Barbara Bush called James Baker the invisible man. And after the Houston con convention went so badly, George Bush himself said aloud of his friend of 30 years, Secretary of State, campaign manager, you can bet your life Jimmy Baker won't be left holding the bag. In a secret program they dubbed the Manhattan Project, Clinton's handlers conducted a series of focus groups that detailed how deeply voters distrusted their candidate. When a group in Allentown, Pennsylvania was asked about their doubts about Clinton, the reaction include, included two-faced. He just goes with the flow. And the focus group said if you asked his favorite color, he'd say plaid. These were the type of revelations from the quest for the presidency in 1992. So a book like Game Changing, although it's been ramped up and there's been a lot more media coverage, is nothing new. I have mixed feelings about these type of books. On one hand, I think anything that gets Americans interested in politics is good, even if it is the more juicy details. And also, it's to be expected. Politics is not a boring discussion of policy alone. There is also a sport to it. There is also a entertainment value to it. It is, in a sense, a game, and there are winners and losers, certainly. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Archives available there for $9.99. Thanks for listening.